Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host. This is our weekly YouTube live stream being broadcast live Thursday, March 29th, 2018 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And this live stream will also be posted as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. If you're watching live, please feel free to ask questions in the YouTube live chat at any time, and I'll try to monitor that and periodically answer any questions as they come up. And in these weekly live streams, we try to keep up to date with the latest Supreme Court news. So we'll just be touching on some of the um, developments at the court over the past week. And here's what I plan to cover today. This week was relatively quiet compared to last week. The court didn't grant any new cases this week, and there was only a single opinion in an argued case. It's a case called Hall v. Hall, um, which is a case about the right to appeal when multiple cases have been consolidated together. Um, I'll discuss that opinion uh, later on in the uh, live stream. But uh, there, there are still a bunch of other interesting developments to talk about. So I'm going to begin by running through some of the orders and other news from the court. And let's start with this week's death penalty stay applications. So there was one execution scheduled for this week uh, on Tuesday, March 27th. Uh, It was a a man by the name of Rosendo Rodriguez, um, who was convicted in Texas uh, and sentenced to death for a 2005 rape and murder. Um, He was referred to in the news as the suitcase killer because his victim's body was found stuffed in a suitcase uh, in a landfill. And he was uh, later also connected to another and earlier murder uh, where another victim's body was was found in a in another suitcase in the same landfill, um, he filed a stay application with the Supreme Court on Monday. So this is an application asking the court to stay his uh, execution, um, and he his uh, his application and his, his petition to the court was uh, arguing an actual innocence claim. So he was arguing that he was actually innocent of the crime he'd been convicted of. Um, and the, the kind of specific hook, uh, that he was asking the court to, to, um, to grab onto in, in, uh, staying this case was, was about allegedly fraudulent practices by the medical examiner who performed the victim autopsy in this case. Um, it was kind of an odd petition and stay application because it never really connected the alleged problems with the medical examiner to Rodriguez's actual case or explain how those problems undercut the evidence against him. Uh, and obviously the state of Texas uh, opposed um, the, the application for a stay and the court denied that stay application on Tuesday with no noted dissents. And uh, he was executed on Tuesday evening by lethal injection. So that's the, uh, the that was the only execution uh, on the calendar this week. Um, there is uh, one other update um, about the case of Doyle Ham, and this is uh, one that we we uh, talked about a few weeks ago. Now he was um, uh, a man who was had been convicted and sentenced to death for a 1987 murder robbery in Alabama, and he had been scheduled for execution on February 22nd. But he had uh, he had made an application to the court uh, stay uh, stay application, um, arguing that it would be cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, to execute him by lethal injection because of his uh, collapsed veins that he had uh, due to some medical issues um, that, that would cause it to be cruel and unusual punishment. And the Supreme Court denied that application, and um, the execution uh, went uh, went ahead as scheduled. However, 
Um, the execution ended up being called off late into the night. This is on February 22nd after several hours of the, uh, the, the, the execution staff attempting unsuccessfully to find a usable vein for the lethal injection. Um, so this, this execution, which was described as a botched execution was later, it was, uh, later widely described as, uh, as a torture involving repeated punctures of his legs and groin, uh, as they attempted to find, uh, a, a usable vein, uh, and it resulted in significant bleeding, um, and allegedly, uh, may have punctured his, uh, both his bladder and, uh, and, um, an artery in his leg. And the question after this was, uh, in light of the, how this, um, how this execution actually played out and the, and the execution team's inability to actually, um, success, successfully in a several hour period successfully, um, uh, find a vein they could use for the injection. Would Alabama try again? Would they reschedule his execution and try and do it on another day? The answer came, uh, this week, uh, on Monday, um, Ham's attorneys, uh, apparently reached a settlement with the state of Alabama. And as part of that uh, undisclosed settlement, uh, Alabama has agreed not to schedule another execution date. So, so that, uh, it's kind of a, um, uh, gruesome chain of events, but, uh, resulted in, uh, Doyle Ham, uh, uh, getting a reprieve, uh, um, and, uh, being spared the, uh, death sentence by the state of Alabama. Um, that's it for, uh, death penalty, uh, news this week. Uh, I mentioned a few minutes ago that the court did not grant any new cases this week. Um, that leaves the court, uh, at only seven cases granted so far for next term, the term beginning, uh, in October. Um, and I, I've mentioned this on previous episodes, but, uh, basically by the time the court leaves for its summer recess at the end of June, um, the court needs to basically needs to have filled up its fall calendar. By the time the court returns at the very end of September, there just isn't enough time to fit new cases. If they grant new cases at the very end of September when they come back, there isn't really enough time to get those cases briefed and on the calendar in, until uh, basically January. And even that is a relatively short time frame, but that's that's doable for those early grants. Um, and so generally the, the cases that are on the docket uh, that have already been granted when the court leaves for its summer recess are the ones that are going to fill up the months in the fall, October, November, and December calendars. Um, the court likes to, to have a, a full calendar as it, it, in recent years, it hasn't had a, it hasn't really filled up its calendar like this, but um, it, say a decade ago, the court typically liked to try and have two, uh, two arguments each day on its argument calendar. And there are 17 days uh, on the argument calendar between those three months. Um, typically, it's six days a month, but there's holidays that, that throw that off. So there's there's 17 days over those three months. So that would mean they need 34 cases to fully fill up those three months of uh, argument. And as I said, they've only got seven right now. Um, I, I looked uh, back over the statistics for, for the, the past uh, decade or so. And, and over about the past decade, the court has averaged about – 25 cases granted from the beginning of April through the end of June. Um, if the court hit that average this year, that would, that would still place it a little bit underneath the target for filling up the fall calendar, but pretty close. But that, that number is just an average and there really is significant variation from year to year. And for example, last year, only 16 cases were granted from the end or from uh, the beginning of April through the end of June. 
Um, and at that pace, they would, they would have a very light, uh, fall calendar. So it remains to be seen, uh, how many cases the court has. And, uh, this is just, uh, in recent years, there's been a, a long-term trend, um, going from the 1980s when the court used to hear, uh, 150 or more cases a year, um, to the, uh, the early 2000s when the court was down to somewhere in the 80s uh, to recent years where it's been below 70 many years, um, the court's docket has just, has just continued to dwindle. And, and uh, this year um, is, is a record low number of uh, cases are going to be decided. Uh, it looks like at the end of the term, it looks like we're only going to have a total of um, at most about 63 opinions and argued cases. And it could be less depending on uh, there's, uh, I'll, I'll talk a, a little bit later. There's some possibilities of a few cases that, or at least one case that, that could disappear from the docket. Um, so it's, it's, uh, an interesting question whether this is just the new normal, uh, having these very light, um, terms it, 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 with only, you know, 60 some cases on the docket. Um, but we'll see as we get, uh, later, uh, into, uh, into the spring, how many cases the, uh, the court adds before they go on their summer recess. Um, this coming, Monday, um, the, the second is the, the next possible date when, uh, when the court might, uh, announce some grants. They had a conference earlier today and those would be announced on Monday, uh, typically. Um, but then there won't be another day where they would be adding new cases until April 16th when the court, uh, begins its April oral argument session. So we'll just have to keep watching and see how, um, next term, uh, shapes up as more cases get added to the calendar. Um, so I'm going to move on to some other uh, developments over the past week. Um, there are two cases where there are some interesting developments related to uh, recusals. Um, now, um, justices, uh, occasion, it's not, not that unusual for, for one or another justice to be recused from, uh, from hearing a particular case for a variety of reasons. Um, sometimes this is because the judge had participated in the case as a lower court judge or as a government official in some capacity before they joined the court. Sometimes it's because a judge has some personal connection to a party or to an attorney in the, ca- in, in the case. Or, uh, for example, uh, Justice Breyer uh, recuses himself whenever a case comes up to the court that was decided by his brother, Charles Breyer, who's a district court, a district court judge in California. Um, and so when his brother was the judge below, Justice Breyer uh, typically recuses. That's just an example of that. Um, and then also uh, when there's a, a financial um, stake by justice in the case, for example, when they if they um, own stock in a, uh, a publicly traded company that is a party to the case. Um, but there were two cases this week where there were some uh, just uh, more unusual uh developments related to recusals. The first is a case called Washington v. United States. And this is a case about fishing rights of the fishing rights of various Pacific North Northwest Indian tribes um, under some treaties dating back to the 1850s. Now, what happened is on Friday, um, the clerk of the court sent a letter to the parties in the case indicating that Justice Kennedy uh, was now uh, going to be recused from the case. And, and let me just, I'll read the language um, from that letter, it says, I'm writing to inform the parties that Justice Kennedy learned recently that while serving as a judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, he participated in an earlier phase of this case. 
and then it, it cites uh, a it gives a citation for a case, and it's a it's a the citation is a decision dating from 1985, uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals case from 1985. Uh, Kennedy has been on the case uh, on the Supreme Court for 30 years, and this is a case from 33 years ago. Um, that's uh, it's, first of all, it's just uh, amazing sometimes to see that th- th- this is a legal dispute that has been ongoing for uh, more than 33 years. Uh, if you think about it, that means this this case is likely older than most of the clerks uh, working for the justices on the court. Um, and it, it's just it's just kind of an odd little thing. It's not really surprising that something like this was missed. Um, when you look at Justice Kennedy, who's been on the court for 30 years, he's, he's probably heard um, more than uh, at least uh, 2,500 or more cases in his 30 years on the court, not to mention the, the huge number of cases he heard on his years on the, uh, on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals before he joined the court. Uh, there's, it's, uh, just the, the, uh, it's not at all surprising that he, he wouldn't have, uh, immediately recognized or remembered this one particular case from 33 years ago. Um, this is, uh, kind of, Renewed some calls, uh, by, by, uh, watchdogs of the court for, for more, um, transparency and more, uh, modern, um, conflicts checking, uh, methods by the court to try and catch these things because there have, uh, there have been some more embarrassing slip ups in recent years of justices not realizing that they should be recused from cases. Um, this one again is, uh, seems, seems like a, uh, very, uh, 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 hard one to catch given just the age of the case, but, um, but that, that is an, an issue that people have, um, paid some attention to because there have been some, some higher profile, um, errors in recent years where, where justices did not recuse themselves, uh, as soon as they should have. Um, the second case is a, is a, another, uh, unusual circumstance, uh, because it's a, it's a, the rare case of a, an unrecusal. Um, so this, this is a case called Western Gecko v. Ion Geophysical Corp. And that's, uh, it's a case about the, uh, scope of damages available in certain, uh, international patent cases. And that's scheduled to be argued in, in, uh, the April argument session. Oh, that's, I don't think I mentioned it, but that Washington v. United States case, um, where Justice Kennedy is now recused, that's also in the April, um, arguments. Now, um, Justice Alito had been recused from hearing this case. So this was a, a case that was going to only going to be heard by eight justices. Um, and the the court, uh, when, when a justice is, is recused from hearing uh, a case, um, normally uh, there's no explanation of why a justice is recused. There's just an indication that a particular justice did not participate in uh in the proceedings relating to the case but it doesn't explain normally doesn't explain why that letter from justice kennedy um was was uh, the uh the exception just because it's explaining this late recusal um normally the justices don't explain why and sometimes it it, it can be a little bit of a mystery and, and it's not immediately obvious why a justice has recused but here the reason was uh pretty apparent so Justice Alito is one of only three justices on the court who continue to hold shares in individual stocks. Um, the other two are Justice Breyer and Chief Justice Roberts. And this, um, this, uh, the stockholding, it occasionally requires, um, the recusal when a company is party to the case. Now, most justices, they either hold, they only hold like mutual funds or index funds or they place any stocks that they own in a blind trust, uh, so that, so that, uh, 
they, they're not aware of their holdings and, and can, uh, don't have to worry about that for hearing cases. But those three justices do own shares in individual stocks and that does occasionally require, um, one or the other of them to uh, recuse in a particular case. And here, Justice Alito owns some stock in a company called uh, Schlumberger, uh, which is a French company that owns Western Gecko, one of the parties to the case. Um, so that, that was, it was uh, pretty clear that that was his reason for recusing from the case. Yesterday, um, the court's press office indicated that Justice Alito is no longer recused from the case. Um, no explanation was given, but the obvious explanation is that uh, Justice Alito has since uh, sold off his uh, Schlumberger sh- stock, uh, presumably just uh, so that he would no longer have to be recused and could hear this case. And in recent years, um, all three, the, the, the Roberts, Alito and Breyer have been gradually uh, def- divesting from their individual stock holdings. Um, so this is kind of uh, just uh, part of that trend. It's just a little unusual because it's happening while the case is uh, you know, after he had already initially recused and all the cases uh, is um, already pending before the court. Um, so moving on to some other pieces of news, this is kind of another update from something I mentioned last week. Um, in last week's live stream, I mentioned that um, a piece of legislation known as the Cloud Act had been included as part of the proposed uh, that massive omnibus spending bill. And as expected, the omnibus bill was signed into law on Friday, March 23rd, uh, making the Cloud Act uh, now uh, the uh, the governing law. Now, the Cloud Act, it stands, Cloud is an acronym standing for Clarifying Lawful Overseas Use of Data. And this is a um, an act that it explicitly, it explicitly authorizes law enforcement to obtain electronic data that's held outside of the United States. So if a company, uh, for example, a, a, a internet service provider or a technology company of some sort um, holds uh, customer data in a, uh, uh, a server that's located outside of the United States, there was a, a dispute over whether under the, the governing uh, law, which is called the Stored Communications Act, whether the uh, United States was able to use that Stored Communications Act to um, to uh, obtain that data stored uh, outside of the United States. Um, that is the issue that's before the court in the case United States v. Microsoft that was argued um, in February this term. Uh, so that's the case, the issue that's currently before the court. Um, but now that this uh, the Cloud Act has passed, which uh, which amends the Stored Communications Act and explicitly allows um, this, this type of... Uh, Obtaining this type of data, although it also provides certain procedures uh, to allow companies to challenge um, uh, uh, challenge th- this kind of collection, um, it, it, it uh, raises the question of what's going to happen to the the Microsoft case. Um, after that law passed on Friday, the Solicitor General filed a letter with the court um, informing the court of this new legislation, and I'll read just the relevant a uh, couple sentences from that letter. It says. The United States is currently determining whether and if so, to what extent the passage of the Cloud Act affects the court's disposition of this case. It intends to file a supplemental filing addressing the question as promptly as possible. Um, so that filing uh, remains to be seen what that filing will say. But most commentators seem to be predicting that this case will end up being remanded to lower courts for further proceedings in light of this change of the governing law. Um it seems extremely unlikely that the court will do anything with this case until it hears more from the parties on this issue. They don't want to um, waste any time 
on a uh, working on an opinion that's that's going to be uh, on a non-issue because the law has changed between when they issue it and when it comes out. Um, and uh, as of earlier today, at least, there was nothing uh, on the docket from Microsoft. They had not weighed in, at least publicly, with the uh, court, though. Uh, it's likely that, that um, Microsoft's, Microsoft's attorneys are uh, in communication behind the scenes with the Solicitor General over how this affects the case. Um, but uh, that, so there's a, there's a very good chance that that case is going to disappear from uh, from the court uh, uh, without an opinion uh, this term because of that change in the law. But uh, again, uh, we'll just have to wait and see on that. Um, so earlier this week, uh, Monday through Wednesday this week, the court heard oral arguments in five cases. Uh, in last week's live stream, I previewed those five cases. And today I just want to comment briefly on one of those cases. On Wednesday, the court heard argument in Benesek v. Lamone. Now, this was a constitutional challenge to um, partisan gerrymandering in Maryland. Um, and I discussed this uh, a, a little bit last week, but the court had already heard one partisan gerrymandering case earlier this term. It was a case called Gilby Whitford, which is a case out of Wisconsin that the court heard the first week in October. That's the very first week of this uh, of this court term. Um, and th- so that case was heard right at the beginning of October. And then in December, this Maryland case, Benesek v. Lamone, the court placed it on its argument. Uh, docket um, it, uh, indicated that it was going to hear this case as well. And there was a lot of speculation about why the court had granted a second gerrymandering case. Often when the court has multiple cases on a closely related uh, legal issue and it has granted one, uh, when other cases come up with that same issue, the court will just hold those cases. Uh, that's just kind of basically do nothing on those cases, let them just kind of sit there and wait um, until the the case that was granted has been decided, and then in light of that decision, uh, often those other cases just get sent back down to the lower courts to just determine the effect of the court's decision on those other cases with related um, issues. But here, rather than holding this Maryland case, the court added it to its docket, and people wondered why. And there was there were different theories. Um, one is that the the two cases, although they they um, concern the, the same issue. Um, they concern a political party um, uh, gerrymandering that is drawing electoral districts uh, for the explicit with the explicit intent of, of favoring um, one political party over the other. Um, the legal theories that were used to challenge that gerrymandering were quite different in the two cases. Um, the Maryland case, the one that was just argued this week, was a First Amendment case, so arguing that this was a retaliation against people on the basis of protected First Amendment activity, that is either partisan affiliation or a past voting um, behavior or things like that. Um, and while the Wisconsin case was a, was a more, it was a equal protection uh, case. So it was kind of different framings of the legal argument. And it could be that some of the justices thought that there was uh, more merit to the First Amendment argument, that that was a better way to decide these cases. And so they wanted to uh, bring a case with that framing of the issue rather than the equal protection um, framing from Wisconsin. Um, another explanation some were giving was that it was kind of for partisan cover for the court. Uh, the Wisconsin case um, was a case that, that had the Republicans uh, kind of as the role of the the villain in the case, the, the, the party that had uh, gerrymandered the districts to give themselves a, a strong advantage um, in, in, uh, in winning electoral, electoral districts. Um, and 
the Maryland case was uh, was the reverse, where where it was the Democrats in charge of Maryland who had um, gerrymandered that state to give themselves a sizable advantage uh, in the elect- electoral districts. And so maybe there was a, a thought by some that that this would kind of um, if they decided both cases and and uh, and overturned both gerrymanders, it would it would give a more of a a uh, the court a more of a um, uh, just a more of a look of neutrality in that, uh, that this is uh, not uh, just uh, goring the ox of one side uh, uh, over the other. Um, but again, that's all speculation. Um, but uh, there was some interesting uh, comments by Justice Breyer during uh, the oral argument yesterday that. Um, seem to uh, maybe shed some light on what's going on inside the court. So again, the Gilvey Whitford Wisconsin case was argued way back in October. No decision has come out yet. It wasn't expected. But it, once the court granted the Maryland case, it was expected by most people that there was no way that the Wisconsin opinion would come out before that case was argued. Um, but it was uh, it was anyone's guess what was actually going on inside the court uh, as far as deciding that case. Um, Justice Breyer, at one point during the argument, referred to three political gerrymandering cases, the Gilby Whitford, Wisconsin case, this Benesek v. Lamone, Maryland case. And he also referred to a third case um, out of North Carolina. It was a case called Rucho v. Common Cause, uh, which the court has just been holding pending its decision on the Wisconsin and Maryland cases. But he referred to those three cases. And uh, let me just read from the transcript. Um, this is him questioning one of the attorneys in the case. And he says, what would you think of taking the three cases and setting them for re-argument on the question of standing? And there we'd have all three variations in front of us, and we would enable people who have an interest in the subject generally to file briefs, and we'd see them all together, and they could attack each other's standards, or they could support each other's standards, or they could attack any standard. But there we'd, ha- we'd have right in front of us the possibilities, as thought through by lawyers and others who have an interest in this subject. And then he expanded a little more later. He said, you could have a blackboard and have everyone's theory on it. And then you'd have the pros and cons, and then you'd be able to look at them all. And then you'd be able to see perhaps different ones for different variations. And maybe there's different parts of gerrymandering that rises in different circumstances. So it, it was a suggestion by Justice Breyer that maybe these cases should be held over to the next term and re-argued. Um, and so it's a, uh, and he, he specifically asked the attorney whether the whether the attorney saw any downside to holding these cases over until until next term. Um, now, it's again, this is all speculation just based on on this comment comment by Justice Breyer. Although, uh, the, if you read the media coverage uh, news coverage of the oral argument, that uh, it, it, there's a very very strong consensus that um, that. Uh, commentators and court watchers were unable to really discern any strong indication of how the court intends to go on, on these cases. The court really, the justices really, uh, many of the justices seemed um, very uh, 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 unsettled about, about how, how to, uh, what, what kind of rules should apply in this case, how this case should be, should be decided. Um, so it, it really does seem like there is still uh, things that are up in the air in this case. Um, but, uh, you know, again, it's all speculation, um, but it's just interesting to th- think about w- what might be indicated by uh, Justice Breyer's comments. Um, him asking the parties whether there's any downside to holding this over until next year, it seems to strongly suggest that whatever the court is inclined to decide on these cases, it's not going to order something that changes, uh, not going to order a, a, something that, that disrupts 
this uh, the upcoming 2018 election. Um, otherwise, uh, that you know that would be an obvious downside to holding this case over till next year. Was it was that would put put any decision till after the election? So the fact that Breyer is suggesting he doesn't see any downside to holding this over suggests that whatever the court does. It, it's not going to want to disrupt this upcoming election, which is getting very close now. And that is consistent with the court's practice in a lot of election cases of being um, very reticent to, to allow courts to make uh, changes to election rules very close to an election or after election processes are, are well underway. Um, and it, uh, it it suggests possibly that the court is, is ha- either having a hard time assembling a, uh, a majority in uh, Gilvey Whitford or at least a hard time in getting an opinion, a satisfactory opinion, getting to a rule that a majority of the court is happy with. Um, and, uh, or perhaps it just suggests that, that Breyer, uh, feels himself to be on the losing side in Gilvey Whitford and is trying to buy more time for, uh, further reconsideration re- of the case. Uh, again, it's all, um, speculation. Uh, some have, some commentators have, have suggested that, that possibly that the, difficulties in working through Gilvey Whitford and coming to some sort of decision on it could be uh, part of the cause of, a, of a, a general slowdown in the court's work and an explanation for why the court has issued so few opinions so far this term, that this is a case that's eating up a lot of their uh, uh, available time. But again, that's uh, this is uh, all speculation. Um, there's also the possibility um, that the court, if it really can't uh, is having trouble coming to any, uh, uh, any, any good decision, uh, that, that the justices are happy with in this case. It could be looking for ways to get rid of this case. Um, and delaying this, uh, the Maryland case till next term would be a good way of, um, mooting the case and getting rid of it. This case, uh, came up to the Supreme Court on a preliminary injunction. If the election is already basically over, um, that would, that would make it a non-issue and, and, uh, at least for now, that case would go away. Um, the, the, the Wisconsin case also has, uh, standing issues, whether the, the parties that are in, in that case challenging the Wisconsin gerrymandering are really the right people to be able to bring that challenge. And that's a way that the court could get rid of that case without really touching on the, the, the core, um, gerrymandering issues. So, you know, if the court really can't decide, it may be looking for a way to get rid of these cases. But again, um, we won't really know until uh, until something official comes out from the court, either either opinions in these cases or some other action rescheduling or delaying or, or getting rid of these cases. Um, so we're just going to have to wait and see. So last piece of news before I move on to the new opinion for this week uh, was a, a rare uh, um, appearance by uh, uh, retired Justice John Paul Stevens, um, he was in the news this week uh, after he published an op-ed in the New York Times on Tuesday, March 27th, um, and it was an op-ed arguing for the repeal of the Second Amendment. Um, and th- this is uh, Justice Stevens. He uh, he left the court in 2010, um, but he remained fairly active uh, shortly after leaving the court. He wrote and published two books after leaving the court. The first one published in 2011 and called Five Chiefs, was a, a memoir about his legal career uh, going from the time he was a law clerk in the late 1940s all the way through his retirement in 2010. And then his his uh, book in 2014 was called Six Amendments, How and Why We Should Change the Constitution. Um, but uh, Stevens, he, who was already 90 years old when he left the court, is now 97, uh, soon to be 98 years old. And his last public appearance was almost a year ago in uh, May of 2017. 
Um, so this is kind of uh, one of the first, uh, it wasn't an actual appearance, it was just a newspaper publication, but the first kind of uh, uh, news from Justice uh, Stevens in, in, in quite some time now. Um, now, Stevens's position on the Second Amendment is not a new one for him. Um, and I mentioned his book, his 2014 book called Six Amendments. One of those six proposed amendments in his book was an amendment overturning, uh, essentially overturning the court's 2008 uh, Heller decision. That was the decision that held that the Second Amendment protected an individual right for self- to self-defense. Um, and he had proposed in that book uh, overturning that um that uh decision and and that that um piece was also at the time excerpted in a 2014 Washington Post opinion piece um so he's he's this is familiar um ground for justice stevens in his uh post supreme court um uh, uh life and uh and 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 public writings um Despite the, all the recent uh, attention to uh, and, and calls for, for stricter gun control and things like that, um, his op-ed didn't uh, necessarily go over that well uh, among uh, uh, some people on the, uh, the left side of the political spectrum where, where you might have expected it to uh, have the most purchase. Just as a few examples, there were articles uh, by Harvard law professor Noah Feldman in Bloomberg News, by Matt Iglesias at Vox, by Harvard Law Professor Larry Tribe in the Washington Post, and articles by Charles Pierce and Esquire, Jay Willis and GQ, various publications, all by um, writers, all, all of whom are supporters of, of stricter gun control, who were quite critical of Stevens's piece and kind of variously characterizing his proposal as either unnecessary or counterproductive or, or even politically naive. Um, so it didn't necessarily get the... Uh, the most uh, uh, friendly reception, but in any event, it's interesting to see Justice Stevens kind of making a uh, increasingly rare for him um, uh, 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 um, appearance in uh, ongoing public debate. Um, so moving on from that to uh, the opinions, there was, uh, as I mentioned, only one opinion in an argued case this week uh, that was issued on Tuesday this week. That brings our total for the term to 17 opinions of a total uh, expected number of 63. And again, as I mentioned before, that could actually go down and be less than 63. So that means we're uh, expecting 46 more opinions by the end of June. Um, that's, you know, assuming that the gerrymandering cases uh, are decided and assuming, and that's if the Microsoft case stays on the, uh, um, the, on the docket and gets decided, which seems unlikely at this point. Um, so again, 46, maybe 45 cases left to be decided. That's slightly higher than the number of outstanding opinions over the last, uh, three years. I looked back over the last three years and each year in this time period, they had somewhere from 40 to 43 cases left to decide. So it's only slightly higher this year, but that's despite this term's lower case, caseload where the court has lower total cases, but still has more outstanding cases it hasn't decided yet. And, to frame things in a different way, there's only 13 weeks remaining of the court's term. Um, and so just dividing evenly over that, that's an average of three to four opinions per week that the court would have to put out to uh, to um, uh, finish up its work by the end of June. Uh, and a few of those weeks, there's there's no uh, no scheduled sitting where the court would uh, would would typically um, issue opinions. Um, and and. 
as as is always the case, that the, the, these numbers will likely be heavily backloaded. There'll be many, many, many more opinions issued in in the month of June, especially the last uh, several three three weeks or so of June. Uh, we'll likely have um, a, a large uh, share of the the remaining opinions. But um, we 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 should. That's why it was a little surprising, given the number of cases that are still out there, that we only got one single case this week, and we, and we should be expecting. Um, from here on out in the rest of the term, uh, a, a pretty regular flow of opinions out of the court in order for them just to get through everything um, by the end of the term. But again, we'll see. So finally, the last thing I want to cover is just the, the one opinion this week. And this is a case called uh, Hall v. Hall. And this was argued on January 16th. And I previewed this case on uh, this podcast in the weekly live stream. And this is, if you, uh, this was episode 19 um, of the podcast, either on YouTube or the audio podcast when I previewed this case. Um, the opinion in this case is unanimous opinion by Chief Justice Roberts. And this is a case about um, appeals in a consolidated case. Now, in a minute, I'll break down what that means. But first, I'm just going to briefly give the facts of the case, just uh, kind of a real quick uh, um, discussion of the facts, just for a little background. So this the the underlying dispute here it was it was a dispute between two siblings over the control of their late mother's estate. Um, the details aren't too important, but there were two separate actions. Um, one was by uh, the, the the siblings were named Elsa and Samuel Hall. So one of the suits was by Elsa as a trustee of her late mother's uh, property, a trust containing her late mother's property, against uh, against her brother Samuel, alleging that he had misused his mother's property. And the other action was by Samuel against Elsa um, individually, alleging that she had exerted undue influence over her mother uh, before her mother uh, passed away. Um, these cases were consolidated. I'm going to discuss that more in a moment. Um, but they were consolidated and eventually tried together in a single trial. Um, Elsa lost in both cases. Um, and one of the two cases, however, there were more proceedings in the, in the trial court. Uh, the, the trial verdict ended up getting vacated. There was a new trial. It, it was still ongoing. But the other of the two cases, the two original cases, um, after the jury verdict, uh, Elsa, uh, immediately appealed that case, uh, up to the, the court of appeals. However, um, the court of appeals dismissed the appeal saying that there was no final judgment um, that could be appealed. So I'm going to explain in a moment what all that means, uh, the consolidation and final judgment. So first, consolidation. Consolidation is, is just a general term for combining multiple court cases together. Um, this happens at the Supreme Court level. Uh, for example, the Supreme Court um, will sometimes consolidate cases for argument and usually for uh, for a decision and opinion. Uh, just there's several cases this year on this 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 uh, terms calendar that are consolidated. Just for one example, there's the case Epic Systems v. Lewis, which was uh, a case about employment arbitration agreements. And this is actually three separate cases that the Supreme Court um, consolidated together for argument. Each of those cases had different parties, but they all involved the same uh, basic legal issue. So the court consolidated them together to have a single oral argument and to issue a single opinion that will decide that elite legal issue for all those cases. So that's just as an example of the Supreme Court. But in this uh, this particular case, we're talking about the district courts, the trial courts in the federal system. And in the district courts, um, under a rule, uh, it's uh, rule 42A of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, uh, it allows consolidation whenever there's a common question of law or fact between two cases. 
two or more cases. Um, and that, that general rule, Rule 42, dates back to uh, 1938 when the, the federal rules of civil procedure were first uh, enacted. Um, but but the, the typical situation where this happens is when you have cases that involve either the same or, or overlapping parties and closely related factual circumstances – where a court will will take those separate cases that have this this kind of factual or party overlap and will consolidate them together so they can all be handled uh, to, uh, just in one single proceeding before a single uh, judge. Sometimes this can be done for limited purposes. So, for example, for pretrial purposes, just for discovery, that's the uh, the exchange of uh, various documents related to the court, for uh, motions uh, when parties are trying to get a case dismissed or things like that. Um, or sometimes they're consolidated uh, basically completely all the way through, including a, tri- a trial. And that was the case here in this case, these two um Actions involving the halls about the the mother's uh, state were both uh, consolidated and tried in a single trial. So, what's the point of consolidation? The basic uh, the purpose is, is is for just efficiency, judicial efficiency. It allows a single judge to hear all the aspects of a case. Uh, the, the the trial judge um, gets deeply involved in the factual record of the case, and if they're if they're they're already um, reading all of the, the the filings and documents and things related to uh, one dispute between the parties. If there's other closely related disputes involving the same parties, it makes sense for that same judge to have all that before them. They can coordinate the discovery and various hearings. It makes it easier to coordinate the attorney's schedules because oftentimes there's uh, overlap in the attorneys between these cases as well. Um, and uh, another benefit, aside from just efficiency, is it avoids uh, inconsistent rulings between two cases. So you, it avoids the situation where if you have two closely related cases with overlapping issues before two different judges, the judges might just decide things that are completely inconsistent between those two cases. And this, this avoids that and keeps it in one place. So here, both of these cases involved the, 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 the exact same, uh, dispute over the same, uh, estate of the mother. There were overlapping parties. It wasn't exactly the same because uh, the, the sibling Elsa was uh, sued as an individual in one case, and she was suing as the uh, trustee of the, uh, the 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 mother's trust in the other case. But but it's overlapping uh, enough that it made sense to to um, put these together in a in a, uh, in a uh, consolidate these before a single judge. Now um, there, so that brings me to to something called the final judgment rule. Now the final judgment rule is a rule that. Um, a case can't be appealed until there's a final judgment, and a final judgment is when all claims of all parties to the case have been resolved. So a legal case, there may be numerous legal claims brought by parties, and there may be numerous parties involved in the case on either side as plaintiffs or defendants um, making various claims against various other parties. And until all the claims of all the parties are resolved, there isn't a final judgment. So if, for example, one particular claim is dismissed or decided in some way, or uh, all the claims of a particular party to the case are, are decided, um, the case is still normally unappealable uh, until until all the claims of all parties have been resolved. Um, there are certain exceptions that aren't really relevant here, but there's also a procedure by which a district judge, that's the trial judge, can... Um, make exceptions to this by entering a final judgment on less than all claims of all parties by fi- making an express finding that, that, that this is appropriate because um, there's no reason for delay and it would make sense to allow immediate appeals of the decision. So there is this exception, but by default, until there's a final judgment on all claims of all parties, 
no appeal is necessary. And there's some reasons for this. This, this, the, the, the purpose of this is just to prevent, um, inefficiency of, of having these piecemeal appeals, um, of having different aspects of the same case going up and down to the appeals court and back down to the trial court. It can disrupt the trial court's process and trying to work through the remaining issues and claims in the case. It forces the appeals court to decide unnecessary issues that if it had let things go through, maybe, maybe, you know, if, if a particular um, claim, for example, gets dismissed, but that, that party could have won on a different claim that's still alive, then, uh, then it may be completely unnecessary to decide uh, an appeal on the, on the claim that was dismissed, for example. And, and it repeatedly uses up the time of the appellate court, uh, which needs to kind of get up to speed on the case, which it isn't, you know, intimately familiar with like the district court would be. Um, so, so the, the gen, that's the general rule, final judgment rule. So the, the question in this case is, how do these two things fit together? Consolidation of cases and the final judgment rule. If two cases are consolidated, um, and here we're talking about consolidated for all purposes, including through trial. If they're consolidated and one of those two cases is completely resolved, um, can that be immediately appealed? Is, is that a final judgment in that, in that um, consolidated case? Or do we have to wait until all consolidated cases uh, all cases that are, that are consolidated together are final before you have a final judgment that's appealable. And this question, it, it seems like a, just a, just a, um, kind of a, a picky little technical, uh, question, but it has, it's, it can be crucially important, has, has a great importance. The, uh, deadlines on filing appeals are very strict. If, if, uh, if a party misses the deadline to appeal, uh, then they, that, that right to appeal may be lost permanently. Um, so you have a situation where if, um, if a judgment, if a, if a party believes the judgment is final, but it's, uh, uh, for example, a judgment on one of the two cases. So this is the situation for Elsa here who, who believed that her, uh, that one of the two consolidated cases was final and wanted to appeal it. Then uh, it, it results in these wasteful, premature appeals that end up just getting dismissed and wasting people's time. But the other side is is uh, the potentially worse one, and and that's if um, if the decision on, on one of these two cases actually is considered a final judgment, but a party believes that they have to wait for all of the consolidated cases to be finished before they can appeal, they may miss the deadline and miss their right to appeal, and that could be permanently lost. So it's it's important for parties to in the courts to know what the rules here are one way or the other. Um, there was a, a precedent in this area, a, a case that's that's on a similar uh, issue from 2015. It was a case called Gelboim v. Bank of America Corp. And that was a case involved um, cases that were consolidated in uh, what's known as an MDL, which stands for multi-district litigation. Um, and Multi-district litigation is just a kind of a special case of consolidation. That's where there are numerous cases involving uh, the, the 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 same sort of circumstance. A lot of times, this may be class actions or other types of torts against a company that are brought in uh, courts all over the country. So, for example, you, you, in, in various types of uh, big litigation about uh, uh, things like uh, asbestos or uh, litigation against cigarette companies or litigation in various environmental or product liability claims, there may be numerous actions filed against the same um, defendant in various districts across the country. And when that happens, these may be consolidated into a single district for various pretrial purposes. And that's known as an MDL, 
for multi-district litigation. And this previous case um, held that in that situation, this MDL situation, when one case uh, was was that was a part of this MDL of this multi-district litigation had was uh, was resolved. So, for example, the claims were dismissed on some grounds or something like that. That did count as a final judgment, and they did not have to wait for the entire entire MDL to uh, to to complete. Um, uh, but here, the situation is a little different because those MDL cases, as I mentioned, are only consolidated for pretrial purposes. So they're not these fully consolidated for all purposes, including trial, um, which uh, is a little bit of a different situation. So that, that the question here was, when you have cases that are fully consolidated, does that change things? Are they Do they count as basically a single action? So the court basically decided uh, no. That the, in in that case, even when cases are consolidated for all purposes, including trial, the cases retain their individual identity. They're still two distinct cases in certain respects, including um, becoming final for purposes of an appeal. And the court has uh, various reasons for this. Basically, uh, it mostly comes down to the the, the meaning of the the term consolidation. And the court says that basically consolidation. The word consolidation is a legal term of art with a history in U.S. law that goes all the way back to uh, a statute passed in 1813. And the court says that basically this term was consistently used from 1813 all the way through 1938 when the current, the federal, the rule of civil procedure number 42, when that was enacted, uh, that whole um, 125-year time frame, the uh, consolidation was used to mean two cases had been joined together but not completely merged. And they did retain their separate identity for judgment and appeal. And so the court reviews kind of the pre-1938 practice. It uh, recites a history of several past Supreme Court cases ranging from 1852 all the way up to 1933 that treated consolidated cases as retaining their distinct identities. And also noted that this this practice was confirmed by lower federal courts and and also by um, legal treatises of the time period. and then it, it, the court goes on to discuss the drafting of Rule 42, the rule that was implemented in 1938, and notes that this rule was expressly modeled on the existing consolidation statute, um, so that it, it wouldn't be expected to have made a major major change. Uh, the court, uh, Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, it quotes this is a quote that we familiar to. Um, uh, students of, of statutory interpretation. Uh, it's a quote from uh, the uh, Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter from a law review article that he, he wrote uh, back in the, uh, I believe in the 1940s. And, and the, the quote from that article is, if a word is obviously transplanted from another legal source, whether the common law or other legislation, it brings the old soil with it. Um, and that's just to say the, the word consolidation had kind of a legal understanding and uh, the new rule was was uh, by adopting, carrying over that word, was carrying with it that understanding that existed under the previous law before then. Um, there was one article argument made that the court specifically addresses that was made by the other side. That that uh, here, let me just read briefly the some of the actual language of Rule 42. Um, rule 42A it it reads in part it says, if actions before the court involve a common question of law or fact, the court may one join for hearing or trial any or all matters at issue in the actions, or two, consolidate the actions. And there's there's more to it that's not relevant here. Um, but the argument there is made that that, that uh, um, Section uh, A1 allows joining uh, actions for hearing or trial, and the argument there is that already covers 
um, this kind of partial, uh, this uh, joining cases together um, incompletely. So A2, when it provides for consolidation of the actions, that must be mean something broader than just joining them for hearing or trial. Um, but the court uh, responds uh, very simply to that and just says, no, actually, A1 is much more limited. That's just talking about consolidation. That's talking about joining things just for hearing or trial. Consolidation is broader in the sense that it allows for all purposes, for discovery and other pretrial motions and hearings and things like that. Um, so that the court explains there's no contradiction and there's no nothing super, superfluous or, or redundant um, involved there. Um, the court also says uh, that, that, that it looks, looks at the... the um, the notes that accompanied uh, the uh, Federal Rules of Civil Procedure by by uh, the Federal Rules Advisory Committee, which was uh, the committee that was in charge of drafting these notes, and and uh, says basically when 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 Congress enacted uh, the the Rules of Civil Procedure, um, th- this wasn't the kind of change they would make change the meaning of a legal term without saying anything about it. Uh, and here's here's a quote from the opinion. It says, "No sensible draftsman, let alone a federal rules advisory committee, would take a term that had meant for more than a century that separate actions do not merge into one, and silently and abruptly reimagine the same term to mean that they do." So that's just a uh, just kind of an interesting uh, um, statement, a restatement by Roberts of, of this idea that that uh, um, there would be some indication if they had intended the terms to. Uh, to to change meaning um and uh the court also cites a, a leading uh a legal treatise that was uh contemporaneous with the enactment of the 1938 rules that stated specifically that consolidation doesn't completely merge cases together and then the court went on to cite several of its own post-1938 precedents of the court that treat consolidated cases as still retaining uh, this distinct legal character so um so after going through all that uh, the conclusion was uh, again this was a unanimous decision by the court that just says that basically uh consolidation does not uh completely and and totally merge these cases such that a final judgment um w- would be needed for all cases that are consolidated together in order to appeal. Uh, one interesting thing to note here is there was one amicus brief filed in this case by several retired US district judges including some some very well respected uh district court judges and they argued uh, the other side of the case, the, 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 the losing side here. They argued that uh, judicial efficiency is is much better served by treating these consolidated cases as a single case for purposes of the final judgment rule. And for for many of the, the familiar reasons that I uh, described above about about the, why the final judgment rule exists in the first place, to avoid piecemeal appeals and um, to not disrupt the district court's management of the case. And they note that this does still leave the district court judge uh, the role of um, kind of a uh, gatekeeping function where they can allow appeals in appropriate circumstances because, as, as I mentioned, the district judge does have the authority to enter a final judgment on um, fewer than all claims of all parties when that court expressly determines that there's no reason for delay and that an immediate appeal is appropriate. So this would still allow, when appropriate, uh, individual parts of an action, uh, you know, or, or one of several consolidated cases to be appealed before everything is finished. Um, but again, it would leave that decision with the district court who, who, which the district judge who is, um, presumably much more well acquainted with the case and can make those kind of judgments about when that would serve efficiency and when it would be appropriate for those things to happen. So they made this very, um, pragmatic, um, 
uh, argument. And, and just as a, as a policy matter, uh, it, it seems very sensible. There's a lot of sense to that, uh, just for the same reasons that the final judgment rule, uh, exists in the first place. Uh, there's a lot of sense to uh, allowing uh, consolidated cases to be treated the same way. But despite that argument, the court, uh, the court really doesn't even address that and just sticks with the, the text and the, the, the language um, of the the rule and the meaning of the term consolidated as it uh, gleans it from these past cases and uh, and other legal um, sources. So it's it's just a um, an interesting note about how the court goes about deciding these cases and which kind of factors are are really important to the court in uh, in coming to its decisions. So that brings us to the end of this uh, live stream episode. The next live stream will be a week from today, and that's Thursday, April fifth. Again, at 9 p.m. Eastern time, that's our usual weekly live stream uh, time, Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. But you can always check the Counting to Five YouTube channel to find the next scheduled live stream. Um, next week, uh, ex- expected to be a pretty quiet week. Um, earlier today, this that's uh, Thursday, March 29th, there was, the court had its weekly conference that's usually held on Fridays of weeks where they have oral argument, but uh, presumably because of a uh, Good Friday holiday tomorrow. They've uh, uh, held their conference a day early on Thursday. Um, and there'll be an orders list uh, Monday morning at 9.30 for uh, orders coming out of uh, today's conference. So that could include some new CERT grants or potentially other interesting orders. Um, and then there's also a possibility that the court could issue some more opinions on Monday. Uh, we don't know yet. Um, typically, the court announces uh, um, uh, uh Friday afternoon, um, if it's expecting to issue opinions, um, the following Monday, I haven't, uh, actually, I, uh, it's possible they announced that earlier this week, uh, um, given the holiday tomorrow, but I haven't, uh, haven't checked that before this broadcast. So I don't know if there's going to be any opinions or if any are expected on Monday, but there could be opinions again as we get closer to the end of the year. And there's always a possibility of other emergency orders or interesting developments. Um, but we'll see, but right now it's looking like, uh, likely a, a a quieter week, but again, um, the cert grants or, or opinions could could change that. We'll see. Whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast, I would love your feedback. You can leave comments on the show notes at countingtofive.com, on the Counting to Five YouTube channel or Facebook page. You can tweet at Counting to Five or send an email to me at mike at countingtofive.com. Please subscribe to the Counting to Five YouTube channel or to the audio podcast to make sure you don't miss future episodes. And thank you for listening. This has been Counting to Five.